what I'm presenting is material from a book manuscript that is oh so close to being finished. I have 200 or so pages written and it's kind of a, a, a look at the church from the perspective of Luke Acts, particularly Acts the first 15 chapters. And I love every chapter, every paragraph, I love. No, that's not true. But I love a lot of them, and I can't give it all to you in an hour and a half. So here's my strategy. I'm going to give you stories today, and then tomorrow I'm going to continue for about half time or a third of the time with stories, and then I'm going to talk about postures and practices that we could learn from the book of Acts that would help us be a people of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the plan. Storytelling today, some of my own, some from Acts, and we'll see how it goes. Um, so, if a museum existed, for documents that changed the world. Among the exhibits, next to the Magna Carta or the Emancipation Proclamation or Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail or Luther's 95 Theses or the lyrics from Blonde, to, um, Blonde on Blonde. You know, you have to throw a Dylan reference in there. Um, I wish I'd have said that right. Next to all these great documents that changed the world would be the letter penned by the Jerusalem church to Gentile believers in Acts 15. And highlighted in the docent notes in our little museum, there would be uh, words like, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, which are words from this document. This momentous letter put into official decree what the church was learning from the Holy Spirit, that indeed no person is unclean to God. Forever then changing understandings of the scope and focus of God's mission. Put succinctly, the Gentiles were now welcome as full participants in the covenants of promise as Gentiles. Let me say that again. The Gentiles are now welcomed into the covenants of promise as Gentiles. There's no proof text for that in the Old Testament. There's no prophetic prediction 
along those lines. There are predictions that say when the Messiah comes, the Gentiles will stream to Jerusalem, but they will become proselytes, converts to Judaism, keepers of the Torah. But here in this letter, for the first time, Gentiles are welcomed as participants in the covenants of promise as Gentiles. That's huge. So everything from the Acts chapter 1 leads up to Acts 15. It's the high point and all the great peaks in the uh, mountain range of the book of Acts Acts 15 is, in my opinion, the high point. And everything that follows depends on Acts 15. There's no bigger moment. Well, there are big moments. But to me, in terms of the plot of the book of Acts, there's no bigger moment than this one. It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. So, a few years ago, they've heard me tell this story, so I'm going to name names. I was consulting for a congregation in Flint, Michigan, and they were looking for a new minister, and I was doing some interim work for them. And they said, we want to make sure that the person we find is God's person. We want to know that the Holy Spirit has led us to this place. They wanted, in other words, an Acts 15, 28 moment, right? So I said, well, let's see what we can do about that. And I began asking them, where there might be opportunities for us to kind of listen together and tell stories together and share life together and food together as we considered all this. And they had nothing. <laughs> you know, they had Sunday morning worship and Bible class, and they uh, had a few small groups, a few, that met on Sunday night. They came together on Wednesday nights, a few of them, for Bible study. So they're redoing Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. They're redoing it Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. They don't have a fellowship space large enough for everyone to get into. They don't have a congregational regular, congregational retreat. They... They had nothing. They, they didn't have regular practices of prayer other than the kind of perfunctory prayers offered in worship each week. They had organized a life around things they thought were important, but not a life organized, organized around the idea of pursuing the living God. It seemed good to us 
uh, to the Holy Spirit and to us would not be a natural outcome of their way of life. They were going to have to construct each piece of a, um, of a season of discernment from scratch. They weren't built to do that as kind of their ongoing way of life. I thought, there's something wrong here. They were built to teach the Bible. They were built to do worship and put on children's classes. They were built to kind of invite people into a few ministries that they supported, but they weren't built for pursuing the living God. Another church that I'm aware of, I'll keep their name out of it, um, they wanted to discern whether or not they should have they should add a second worship service. They had a problem to solve. They wanted to put together a discernment process, and they actually used the language that would get us to an Acts 15 moment. It seemed good to us, to the Holy Spirit, and to us. And so they asked their members to pray over about a two-week period, and to come back then on a Sunday, and they gave two opportunities for you to come and report what you had heard the Spirit say to you during that time. And out of that, they would make a decision on uh, a second service. Well, it sounds good, right? We should pray about things. That sounds like a good thing to do if you want to discern the work of the Holy Spirit, right? But when they got together in those two meetings, they fought over personal opinions, right? They had prayed about it, but they already knew what they wanted, whether they wanted a second service or not. And so this kind of thin practice of praying and reporting wasn't enough to deliver for them the moment that they wanted. They had a problem to solve, not a story to tell. And it was tied to getting something done, making a decision. It was not their way of life. They were inquiring of the gods, hoping for a little divine luck. Not to find themselves in the thick sojourn of the life of God, led daily by the Spirit of God into a new reality. So my reading of Acts 15 and my experience of consulting with churches made me wonder, is Acts 15, 28 a sign, a clue, a confirmation that you are the people of the living God? Put another way, are Acts 15, 28 moments 
should they be a natural byproduct of a congregation's way of life? And I think they should be. And so then I started thinking, okay, what was it then that got the church in Jerusalem to the 1528 moment, and what could we learn from that? And that's what the book is about. So, this would require from us, I think, a rereading of Acts. And I've attempted a very close rereading of Acts in my book. One way it needed to be new, I anticipated, and one way surprised me. The way I knew needed to be overcome was the traditional way we in Church of Christ have read the book of Acts. We've read it as a pattern to be repeated. My son, when he was young, it's good to see Clark's parents here. Clark lived on the hall with my son at ACU as a freshman. But when he was little, we watched the movie Field of Dreams together. He was like four or five years old, I think. And I came home the next day and went to his room, and he had conscripted every toy he owned in uh, reduplicating the set of Field of Dreams. Um, I, I already had him speculating in baseball cards, you know, uh, so we would buy cards together. And I had taken a big bed sheet, and I had drawn a baseball diamond on the bed sheet, and he could fold that out on his floor, and get his little baseball cards out and play on that. And he had taken Legos and he had built bleachers on one side and he'd taken all of his toy soldiers and made them the cornfield around the outfield. And I came into his room and I said, hey buddy, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing Field of Dreams. And he showed me where everything was and what everything was. I said, that's so cool, Josh. And he looked up at me and he said, um, Daddy, what's this movie about? Which is kind of a great way to say that you can reduplicate the cornfield and the bleachers and the diamond and get the characters and still not know what the story's about. And I think our attempt to pull patterns from Acts that it's a blueprint of sorts that gives us um, certain ways of worshiping or organizing ourselves, has, or even of um, entering the Christian faith. That, that kind of blueprint, kind of way of reading Acts has kept us from seeing the dramatic flow of the story that Luke narrates for us. And it's a dramatic story. The other reading that I think needed to be overcome, which I think also will highlight the role of the Holy Spirit, Acts has traditionally been read as an apology for why the Jews rejected Jesus. And indeed, 
at the end of Acts, Paul says, I'm not going to the Jews anymore, on to the Gentiles. And one other time in like Acts, I want to say 14, 13, 14, somewhere in there, uh, Paul and Barnabas say, um, we're not going to go to the Gentiles. I mean, the Jews, they won't listen. We'll go to the Gentiles. And so Acts has kind of been read that way. It's a story that explains why the Jews rejected Jesus and the Gentiles accepted Jesus. But that's a, uh, a very poor reading, I think, of the book of Acts. First of all, the mass conversions in Acts, there are two that are huge, happen among Jews, not Gentiles. The, and, in, and not in every Gentile city do, are there responses in a positive way, like Paul's Famous speech to the unknown God produces zero converts. And so the mission among the Gentiles is a sign that God's kingdom now has jumped the tracks and gone to bigger places, but it's not a story of unmitigated success among the Gentiles. The results are mixed, as they are among the Jews. To me, the issue is not Jew versus Gentile, although the inclusion of the Gentiles is a huge part of Acts. The real issue is the powerful versus the marginal. In Luke, Jesus will say, don't be afraid when you stand before rulers and kings and the Sanhedrin. For the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in those moments. In the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Mary is, you know, encountered by the angel and she says, um, why have you looked with favor on the lowliness of your servant? And in Luke, we don't get magi, wise men, we get lowly shepherds. And in Luke, we get Simeon and Anna, these aged prophets who are living around the temple precincts, relying on the benevolence of the temple. And in the inaugural sermon in Luke 4, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In Luke, the rich young ruler sent away while Zacchaeus is welcomed. All of this matches the opening song that Mary sings in the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He has exalted the humble and brought the powerful down from their thrones. And to me, this is the drama of Luke Acts. 
This is the primary story arc. It's around the issue of power, that those who have kind of kingdoms of the earth power are opposing the Christian movement, and the Christian movement stands against that only in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see a couple of those places in stories I'm going to tell today. So, Gentile authorities beat Paul, oppose Christians. Jewish authorities beat Peter and John, oppose Christians. The theme is not Jew or Gentile. The theme is the powerful versus the marginal. And the Christian movement consistently in Luke-Acts is presented as the people of the margins who are now encountering the world in the power of the kingdom of God, who are, empowering, who are encountering the kingdoms of this earth with the power of the kingdom of God, namely the Holy Spirit. That's the story arc. So what I want to do with the rest of our time um, to... So I write in the book, beautiful sentence, I think you'll agree. A kingdom consisting of the poor, the common, and the lowly makes its way in the world only by the surprising and disruptive power activity of the Holy Spirit. This, to me, is the view of the church. This is the major narrative arc in the book of Acts. So, I want to spend the rest of my time telling stories that you know, but stories that I think might surprise you. And that's always a cool thing. So, uh, let me get another uh, paragraph around our main theme. The reality of God in Acts shows that the church belongs to a different kind of reign under a different kind of power. A different kind of power than the one offered by Caesar or any other subsequent empire. Strategic plans, after all, benefit those who can manage outcomes, who hold social power, and make policy. A kingdom, however, consisting of the poor and the common and the lowly makes its way in the world only by the surprising and disruptive activity of the Holy Spirit. This is the story of Acts. The movement of the first Christians from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth comes through unlikely characters and surprising circumstances. All of this happens in spite of the best efforts of rulers, both Jewish and Gentile, to suppress what is happening. It is a story that is only explainable 
by the movement of the spirit of the risen Lord. All right, I want to talk about Luke's view of the death of Jesus. And for most of us, we've been taught over a long period of time that the death of Jesus is primarily a sacrifice for our sins. And that's part of the biblical picture, but it's not the picture Luke gives. In Luke, Jesus consistently aligns his pending death with the previous deaths of God's prophets. At a strategic moment in Luke's gospel, after having already predicted his death on two occasions, Jesus, quote, set his face toward Jerusalem. That's kind of the pivot in the Gospel of Luke. My Joseph Fitzmaier commentaries on Luke are chapters 1 through 9 and chapters 10 through 23. 951 is seen by all scholars or most as a significant turning point in Luke's story. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And a few chapters later, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. This lament over Jerusalem matches woes that are delivered to the Pharisees in chapter 11, 37 through 50. At the conclusion of this string of woes that we have, I have on the screen behind you, Jesus implicates the Pharisees in the killing of God's prophets from Abel to Zechariah. That's A to Z. That's like, it's a way of saying all y'all. You killed all of God's prophets. This lament over Jerusalem, then, is, is an indictment for Jesus against the religious authorities now in the story of the Gospel of Luke. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. You are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation, and I want you to hold on to that phrase, this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from Abel to Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. 
Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. All of this unjust killing is going to come home to roost now. This is how Jesus sees his own death. So in setting his face to Jerusalem, Jesus is clearly aligning his death with the blood of all the prophets since the foundation of the world for which this generation will be held responsible. The judgment against this generation finds an echo in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Do you know it well enough? You know Acts 2.38, but do you know Acts 2.40 and 41? Peter, after calling them to repentance and baptism, Luke tells us, he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection of Luke clearly has something to do with this identification with the righteous who suffered unjustly throughout history. The salvation offered by Jesus and Luke might very well cover road rage or eating loose grapes in a grocery store or impure thoughts or cheating on an exam. Although the more I teach, less I think that's covered by anything, right? I tell my students, if you cheat on an English exam, you'll be on academic probation. You cheat on a Bible exam, you're going to hell. That's just all there is to it. So it might very well, the death of Jesus might very well cover that, but that's not the point in Luke. The death of Jesus is specifically offered in Acts 2, the death and resurrection, to those who find themselves complicit with the ultimate killing of God's prophet. But how does Jesus' death there, how does that become the circumstance for this offer of salvation in Acts 2? As a kid, if we had a really good song leader that Sunday, I worship, you know, like you do in the historically a cappella tradition, we might go for it if we had a really good song leader and sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And in the literal sense, we were not there. But the song made us think through the lines, sometimes it causes me to tremble, 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 that indeed we might be complicit in the death of Jesus. And I think something similar is going on in Acts 2. The people in Acts 2 did not participate in the killing of Jesus 
the way that Pilate or Herod or the high priest did, or even in the way Judas did when he betrayed Jesus or Peter when he denied Jesus. It's not personal guilt that Jesus is concerned about in Luke 11 or that Peter is concerned about in Acts 2. The problem is much bigger than personal guilt. I'm not saying we don't have personal guilt. I'm saying the problem's much bigger than that in Acts 2. The problem is the way the world works. The problem is that God keeps sending prophets and the world keeps killing them, even up until today. At the climax of the scenes related to Jesus' trial, Luke makes it clear that his killing is a group effort. Pilate then called the chief priests, leaders of the people, he reports. This is bigger than the decision of an evil person or group of people. The momentum that leads to Jesus' death sentence feels more like a social contagion, like Facebook feels these days. And this is underlined by Pilate's repeated findings of Jesus' innocence, which really emphasize in Luke. Four times including three in this climactic scene, Pilate finds, quote, no grounds for sentencing him to death. This is an unjust killing. But the crowd is unmoved by Pilate's finding and shouts over him, crucify him. They prefer that Pilate release Barabbas a convicted insurrectionist and murderer. Trading Jesus for Barabbas makes no sense from a public safety standpoint, right? The crucifixion of Jesus is not about justice. It's about social control. Though Pilate finds nothing in Jesus to sentence him to death, he gives in to the crowd's desires, conceivably to avoid social unrest. Luke, and only Luke, reports that one result of the series of interrogations that Jesus faces in his final days is that that same day, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other. Before this, Luke says, they had been enemies. Herod, Pilate, chief priests, and the people all find a place of unity in the violent death of Jesus. The killing of Jesus has kept, even made, the peace the thing about belonging to a way of being in the world that keeps the peace through violence 
is that the victims need to stay dead. Jesus knew this. His woes against the Pharisees and lawyers seem to indicate this. He compares the Pharisees to unmarked graves. And people walk over them without even realizing it. They've covered death. And people live around it without even knowing that it's there. Right? While the image, this image, could be interpreted in many ways, I think Jesus seems to be saying that their surface observance of the law obscures the, uh, the neglect of deeper matters related to justice. Their piety in this case covers death. Their religious practice obscures murder. The image is more explicitly tied to killing of prophets in Jesus' condemnation of lawyers in the same passage. The lawyers, Jesus says, build tombs for the prophets who their ancestors killed. This might be interpreted in two ways. One way is to say that by building the tombs, they approve of the activity of their ancestors. But I think the implications of Jesus' words go deeper. They are honoring those who were unjustly killed, blunting the offense of the violence, burying it literally. They are using the death of the prophets as propaganda for the very system that killed them. It, to me, it's blood-curdling, this indictment that Jesus brings against the Pharisees and lawyers. And I got to tell you, reading Luke has changed Martin Luther King Day for me forever. Because we've turned it into a celebration instead of a lament for murder. Instead of the tragedy that um, accompanies the killing of one of God's prophets. That's free, though. You can. The rest of it you're, you're paying for, but that one's free. So the inconvenient matter in the killing of Jesus is that he didn't stay dead. The amazing scene of Acts 2, 1 through 4 is explained by Peter as the result of God having raised this Jesus from the dead. Not only that, but this one who is raised from the dead wasn't just any prophet, this is God's son. So let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this one that you crucified by hands outside the law has made this one both Lord and Messiah. And they said, oops. <laughs> they were cut to the heart, Luke says. I might have written they lost bowel control. 
you know, they've found themselves now on the wrong side, unexpectedly on the wrong side of the story. After all, Luke describes them in Acts 2 as devout Jews from every nation under heaven. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff here. So, there are stories in Luke, in the gospel, that indicate that what's expected in relation to those who have persecuted Israel, the nations, the Gentiles, is that retribution will be visited upon them. And Jesus himself tells the parable of the guys who uh, the vineyard owner goes away and the guys come in and beat the servants and steal the money and the owner of the vineyard says well then I'll send my son surely they won't kill him and they do expecting that somehow they'll get a reward for doing that and the owner of the vineyard visits retribution on them. That's what we'd expect now. Now that the unjust killing of Jesus has been revealed and our complicity in it has been exposed, we might expect vengeance from on high. But instead, we are offered forgiveness. Instead, we are offered the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want you to lose the word holy. Think about this. God's Holy Spirit has been poured out on the very people and offered to the very people who put him to death. And later, the Holy Spirit will be offered to Gentiles, the unclean, right? This is the story of the death and resurrection in Luke, is that the death of Jesus awakens us to the way our world works in justice against the powerless and against God's prophets, and exposing us to that in our complicity doesn't leave us to wallow in our brokenness, but instead offers us the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, theologians often say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit gets such a bad rap. The Holy Spirit's on the scene before Christ is. The Holy Spirit to me is the second person of the Trinity at least. And the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, I think in Luke Acts, is ever bit as important as the birth of Jesus in Acts 1 and 2. And, of course, they're connected in Luke and Acts, right? But here, the, uh, I have another line I want to read. 
Um, so, and I'm not going to get nearly the number of stories that I hope to tell. I know you were hoping for Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe we'll get a little bit of that tomorrow. But the repentance that Peter calls for in Acts 2.38 is a repentance that would save people from this corrupt generation that would save people from their complicity in a system that continues to kill God's prophets. And this requires more than just deciding, could we all agree not to kill any more of God's prophets, but instead to do what they say for us to do? No, it's not that simple. It requires repentance into a different way of life, a way of life that resists the way of life given to us by other kingdoms and by other powers. And so Acts 2 ends with a summary of what the spirit-directed, empire-resisting community looks like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and prayers. This is the powerful life that will create reality other than the one Caesar would create for you. This is what the church and the power of the Holy Spirit looks like. devoted to apostolic witness and teaching. Luke's going to say in the next verse, they perform signs and wonders. And I think in some way, you've got to find a way to lean into that and grab a hold of that and to be open to that in your life. To fellowship, koinonia, common life, Luke will say in the next verse, they shared all their possessions in common and no one had any need. To the breaking of bread, in the next verse, Luke will say, they ate together and they were together always in the temple and they broke bread together gladly in their homes, sharing the goodwill of God praising God and sharing the goodwill of all the people, something like that. But then you get the prayers at the end, praising God and sharing the goodwill of all the people. All right, here's a big point I'll let you go for today. A 1528 moment, truly recognizing the movement and leading of the Spirit of God among us, is not an episode that you do every now and then when you have a big decision to make in church. Rather, it's the product of a way of life. It's not that we can build a cage to trap the Holy Spirit it is rather that the Spirit pulls us into a way of life 
that necessarily is going to require that we share everything in common, that we eat meals together, that we are devoted to prayer, that we lean into what the Spirit might be doing among us through signs and wonders. It is only, and we've, we have domesticated these verses, but they are the radical end of an old world and the beginning of a new world. They are the end of the world that keeps killing God's prophets and the beginning of a world that makes God's peace another way. They are the end of an old world whose power is imprisonment and fines and death and taxation. They're the end of the power of that world and the beginning of a world empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, there is nothing that can resist the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, we'll pick up there tomorrow.